cannot explain how great it feels to be back behind this microphone. I'm Hillary Kinney, creator of Holler Podcast, and I just want to thank you all so much for tuning in after we took an extended break of a few months to grow our team a little bit. For those of you who don't know or who are just now tuning into the show, I kind of came up with this idea for a podcast that would celebrate and feature West Virginia women. It kind of caught on, received a lot of love, and after doing about 15 episodes on my own, in my bedroom, traveling on my own to do interviews, I decided in February to take a short break and to find some more members for our team. I'm so, so happy to announce that we're now a mighty team of three instead of just one person, and I'm so fortunate to have Olivia Miller who is actually a student in the WVU Reed College of Media, join our team to be doing some marketing and social media work, as well as some photography on the side. And Colleen Good, also a, um, well, a graduate of the WVU Reed College of Media as well, who's going to be doing a lot of help with production and audio and all that good stuff on the side. I'm so happy to have them, not only because they're so talented, but there needs to be a strong force of women behind a podcast about women. So Colleen and Olivia, I know you're going to hear this. Thank you so much for being a part of this awesome project. Although we're not quite ready yet for season two, we thought that the West Virginia primary election would be the perfect time to experiment and see how we want to work with the show moving forward. On Sunday, we actually had our first live event at Daisy Moon Bakery, a woman-owned business in Morgantown, West Virginia. We had a candidate mixer where we invited five candidates to be on a Q&A panel with us. Of course, the event went incredibly well until we realized that we experienced some major technical difficulties and weren't able to actually capture all of the audio from our panel. In fact, most of the audio. We're incredibly heartbroken that we can't share that question and answer panel with you all but hope that you understand that we're just a team of three young women trying to create something awesome for all of West Virginia and beyond to enjoy. In attendance, we had Delegate Barbara evans Fleshauer, who is a representative from the 51st District in West Virginia, who is running for uh, her seat again. We also had Stephanie Zucker, who's running for West Virginia Senate in the 14th District, Danielle Walker, who's running for House of Delegates in the 51st District, and Sarah Anderson, who's running for the Montegalia County School Board. If you check the information in the podcast, you will actually see that we have links and information on those candidates. So please, 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 if you weren't able to make it to the mixer and you want to learn more about these women who are running for office in the Morgantown, Mon County area, please check out their websites and their social media pages. Also in attendance, we had Kendra Fershay. Kendra is running in the 1st Congressional District in West Virginia. She is a working mom. She is a WVU law professor. She loves West Virginia, and she is incredibly passionate. And I honestly, as I was going through the interview that I had with Kendra that I'm about to share with you all, I found it incredibly difficult to pick and choose what parts I wanted to include. So I'm giving you all the entire thing. Some amazing points that Kendra touched on were how she decided that she would run for Congress. When she had to second guess doing so because she thought, well, what about my kids? And she realized, 
what's better for my kids than seeing their mom run for public office? She also talks about how she's come to love West Virginia. She's not originally from here, but she's made it her home. And she wants the opportunity to represent this state. So please, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Support these women candidates and all of the women candidates across the aisle who are running for office in our state. We need more women in politics. And for those of you who know me, know I'm very passionate about this. Women make up 51% of the population, yet I think in in our state, um, it is either at 20% or less than that in public office. We need more women who are representing not just women, but all of us. This is Kendra Fershay. So, um, Kendra, I've heard a lot about you, read a lot about you, um, and I actually... I love starting at the beginning when mm-hmm. I talk about people's stories and what has motivated you. So you aren't originally from West Virginia. Right. So what was your upbringing like and what made you decide to come to West yeah. Virginia? So I was actually born and raised until um, until I graduated from college in Michigan. Uh, my family is actually pretty much all still there, uh, as is my husband's. We both grew up in Michigan. And, um, and I left Michigan when I was just out of college because I was really interested in politics. And I went to D.C. and I worked in issue politics for almost five years, primarily working to fight vouchers, which had just started in sort of kind of being a thing that we were concerned about with respect to draining resources from public schools. And, um, and we were successful. It was one of those political stories that you don't necessarily hear very often where you have a goal, you're, you have an issue, a particular thing that you see as a real problem. You set out to educate people about that problem and they realize that it is not the answer and, and it's defeated. That's what happened with school vouchers 20 years ago. And one of the biggest battlegrounds was in Michigan. I was actually in DC working on it, but the battleground was in Michigan because of Betsy DeVos. So here we are. Right. Anyway, <laughs> here we are again. Right. Exactly. History is repeating itself. But um, so I um, I worked in politics for a while, and then I decided after my husband and I got married, um, we decided to go to law school together, um, which was funny because. I always described us as like the weird old married couple in law school. <laughs> uh, of course, looking back, I was like, we were actually really young, but we, you know, but it felt like we were really like, you know, different from a lot of our classmates, but we loved that. We had a really, really amazing experience as law students. We fell in love with the law. We fell in love with learning. We fell in love with sort of all over again. You know, we'd worked for five years before we went back to school and it was just this really enriching experience. And we fell in love with it so much that we knew that we had to, if we could, get back to law school after graduating. Um, So we worked for a few years at big law firms, but we really set out a goal to get into the um, academic side. And um, and then we, so we did, which was really unusual and surprising that we could find two positions at the same school, but we did. Um, And in terms of our professional life, the rest is history. I, I, you know, I love what I do. I love my students. Um, I'm the associate dean for academic affairs. It's I love that too. Um, it's sort of the vice principal's job, but I love it anyway. Um, and I wasn't thinking about 
politics. I hadn't really, I'd left that in the rearview mirror. I was sort of moving on with my legal career, my academic career. And, um, and then in 2016, we saw a sea change. Mm -hmm. We saw people beyond done with politics as usual, which we've been saying forever. Oh, we're done with politics as usual. But 2016 showed that particularly in West Virginia, we were really done with politics as usual. Um, oh, so, and let me just back up a little bit and say how, why I'm here, um, how I got to West Virginia. My husband and I were teaching, um, had been teaching for six years, and Joyce McConnell, who was the dean of the law school at the time, called and said, we would love to have you come to West Virginia. She called my husband, um, he's an energy and business law okay. professor. And um, she said, we need we have needs for energy and business law and we need family law. And where were you teaching at the time? University of North Dakota. Okay. Where we had been for five years and we taught for a year before that um, at Penn State actually. So we knew we would, would love to be in this region because it's closer to our family in Michigan. We knew that um, WVU is a great school, but we didn't know much else about West Virginia or, or Morgantown. But we said, absolutely, we'd love to come and visit and interview, and we did, and I fell madly in love with Morgantown and with West Virginia from day one, um, and we knew this was where we wanted to be. So that was six years ago. I mean, I was just, we came here for a career and to raise our kids. Our daughter started, was, you know, three when we moved here. My son was six, and... Um, now you've made it home and it's home and yeah. it's been and it was home it was just home for you know the first six years it was certainly not my ambition to move here um for any other reason than to raise my family and 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 have a career and um and then when the elections happened and i realized that we were up we were really in a place where we needed some change um i just thought you know, I, I, we need somebody who is different from everybody else who's going to Washington. And when I tell people that, they'd say, you need to run for office then. Yeah, I, I always, I listen to all the political podcasts and and I love reading about women in politics and this change. Yeah. So I've heard that sometimes it's, um, women have to be asked multiple times before yeah. they actually decide to run for office. Yeah. What was your experience? Like you said, people had suggested you run. So how did yeah. you come to terms with that? And when did you decide <laughs> to put your step into the game? Yeah, no, it, it was, it happened. I heard it a lot. And, um, in fact, I f had forgotten until recently the day after the presidential election, I put on Facebook, we need women to run for office. And I tagged like, every woman I could think of. And they kept saying, it's a great idea. You should run for office. And I was like, what? Whoa. Not like it was you. like some like Jedi mind trick. Um, and so I had that, that happened. I started talking to people and they kept telling me over and over that I should run. And I really wasn't, it was like bouncing off. I was not hearing it. I was like, I kept saying like, that's not what I mean. That's not what I'm talking about. You're not hearing me. Um, and, but then I actually was talking with my husband about this and I was like, I can't run for office. I mean, the kids are young. This would be a major strain on the family. It would just be a real difficult time for us. And I was going on and on about how hard it would be or how, you know, how just disruptive it would be for the family. And he finally was like, time out. Do you mean to tell me you think it would be a bad thing for your children to see their mother run for Congress? And I, it just, it was like that record scratch moment where it really, I just stopped in my tracks 
And I thought, I've been thinking about this all the wrong way. That question entirely flipped the analysis in my head because as soon as I started thinking of it as a net positive, as a good thing for my kids, as a good thing for my family, it made perfect sense. And this is the challenge. I don't think men have that question necessarily. Certainly nobody else is asking them. No. What are, what's going on with the kids? How are you going to do this? You know, it's like, doesn't matter. You, you want to run for office? Great. Um, and we women tend to think about all the potential negative repercussions and we don't think of the positive first. So once I started thinking of it that way, it really changed the analysis entirely. Yeah. How has the experience been for your family and for your kids? It's been great, actually. I have been shocked uh, multiple times at how how beneficial this process has been. And, you know, my, my husband was right. This has been something really special for all of us to be a part of. The kids come with me if they can. I mean, they're busy now. They're in uh, seventh and fourth grades so they've got, you know, girls on the run and track practice yeah. and they're involved in the Morgantown Theater Company here. Um, but if they're available, they ride along with me and they're very supportive and excited and involved. And it has, I think, been an experience that they wouldn't trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I thought, well, there will be some bumps along the way and there have been a few, but like almost none. What are for your family? What have those yeah. been? Well, just mostly me feeling guilty um, that I missed some things. They, you know, the choir concerts and the um, and the band concerts. My son's jazz band concert was at the exact same time as my first debate. Um, there are just certain things I cannot be at, and my husband has taken on one hundred percent of that responsibility. We've always been really good at sharing those responsibilities, and he is unbelievable and not only his support but his he's really proactive about you should go do that I'm you know he's he's really constantly pushing me to do more and go out more even though it means more for him to do at home so like every single responsibility has shifted to him what has what is some advice you would give to um a woman who is interested in becoming a community leader or running for office women well, you know, uh, we have so many different situations and challenges that, you know, some women might not have the same opportunities or resources to be able to run. Right. For single moms, it right. might be hard to run for office. So what's some advice you would give to women? Right. So um, women tend to be, I think, very, very practical and very pragmatic. And so we start with what's going to be hard. I think women should reverse that and start with the pros. Make your list of pros and cons, but start with every single pro you can think of and don't go to the cons until you've exhausted that list of pros because you want to front load the good stuff and make sure that that's the lens you're looking at, looking through when you're making a decision like this. Um, The other thing is, and it seems really weird, but you have to practice saying things that sound insane coming out of your mouth, like I'm running for Congress Right. That seems like a like when I first started saying it, it almost it felt bizarre. You know, I was like, I'm a mom. I'm a law professor. I'm a I'm all these things that I can call myself. But a congressional candidate seemed way beyond what I was envisioning for myself. And now it's easy. You know that. But the first 
however long I did it, I, I really had to push myself to actually say those words, which just seems really wild. So practice, right? Practice, just stand around when you're in the house, when the, in the shower, whatever, practice saying those words that seem improbable. Um, so, you know, sort of behavioral psychology. Right. And, um, and, you know, and also try to set aside the, it's, it's really tough to do, but try to set aside the artificial barriers that people will suggest are a bigger deal than they are. One of the main reasons why I hesitated to even consider running is that my kids are still in grade school. And then I started thinking, but isn't that what we want? Don't we want parents whose kids are still young enough to be in public schools? You know, don't we want parents who work full time? Don't we want you know, women who have like done the carpool stuff. Average people. Right. And that was what, and and so I kept thinking, well, that that was what I was advocating when I was saying we should have people running that are, you know, sort of real people who understand our, our, what our world is. Um, But when it came to me thinking about being that person, it seemed odd because I had all of a sudden those benefits that I thought made a good candidate seemed like barriers to me. Do you think that's the biggest problem women face? Those artificial barriers or... I know there's a slew yeah. of them probably, but yeah, no, I think, I think that is it. It's, it's like, you know, I think I've heard this before that in terms of work satisfaction, a lot of employers want to give raises and they think, well, as long as people are making more money, they're happy. And in fact, it's almost never the money that makes people happy. It's all the other stuff, the intangibles. So like, are, do you have friends that you can go to lunch with? Do you feel like you're supported? Are you, you know, do you laugh with your coworkers? Those sorts of like slippery things that are hard to measure. All of those sorts of intangible factors are the things that weigh on you the most in this process. And they're usually from the negative perspective. Like what is, what are the sort of, in the, what's in the shadows of the, of the decision? So you can say to people, well, these are my factors that I'm using to decide, but it's really the other stuff like, you know, I'm not going to be able to exercise, which it has been a yeah, real challenge. Sure. Um, or if I do, I feel like I'm really not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I have, I don't know how you want to count it, but at least two full-time jobs plus my kids and my spouse. So, which, and they, again, have taken all of the responsibility off of me in that regard, but I don't want it all to be my husband's job. I, I want to be with my family if I can. So, um, so the stuff that, that, like all those little things that kind of make you a, who you are have to sometimes have to take a back seat mm-hmm. while this other thing is happening. But it's temporary. temporary. That's the thing I also needed to remind myself. It won't last forever. Yeah. You, switching gears a little bit, you were talking about saying those things, I'm running for Congress. Right. I was trying to do a little bit of research earlier, and I think that there have only been two women in Congress from West Virginia. Why does West Virginia need a woman's voice in Congress now? Well, I think any, first of all, um, I think we need new people and women are so underrepresented that that's one easy place where we can have people with a different experience than the people who are in there now um, contributing to the change in the tone and tenor of Congress. But as I say to people, I don't think women are magical unicorns. Like, I don't think we're going to go and everything's going to be perfect. But there is this sort of idea of, of people who can build a coalition around a, 
a unifying principle and it doesn't matter about party. You know, there are going to be, presumably based on the numbers of women running, there are going to be a lot more women in Congress after November of 2018. And, and wouldn't, you know, one of the things that I'd like to do is day one, go to Congress and get all of the women who are brand new, regardless of party together for lunch every, you know, every once in a while. And there you've got already a connection with someone that maybe is very different from you politically, but might be able, might be someone you can build, build, you know, some relationships with to make things happen in West Virginia that simply couldn't have happened before because women weren't involved in the process. I yesterday was reading an article about the pilot who was in, who flew the Southwest flight that had the engine explosion and it was obviously an incredibly high stress moment. She was a one of the first women fighter pilots ever in the US Navy, which is funny cuz that was sort of my dream when I was a kid. I Top Gun had just come out and I envis- <laughs> I envisioned myself like a woman fighter pilot, but you know, it was the the odds are long, you know, I had this whole sort of thing in my head. But um but she did it. She she put her mind to it. She did that and now she flies for Southwest and and everybody saying she's, you know, she she had nerves of steel. She was incredible. And it made me think, and this is a something I go back to fairly regularly, because women have been excluded from so many parts of our society for essentially all, all of time, right? What could we have now that we don't if women had never been excluded? Would we have a cure to cancer? Probably, right? Not that women necessarily are the necessary, are, are, are better than men, but we've excluded half of the population from the problem solving that we need to do to be a functioning society. And you can be sure that there were some incredible, br- incredibly brilliant scientific minds in those women who were really only ever able to stay home and take care of kids, period, full stop. There was no option for them to offer those skills. Would we have flying cars? Would the internet have been invented earlier? Would we have different policies? Would we have a totally different government system? Uh, or at least different policies that are um, better for us now. Communities that are led by women have lower incarceration rates, better um, public education outcomes, and better financial um, infrastructure. It's again, I don't know that it's necessarily that women are doing that. It's that they are more involved. Having everyone who has skills involved in the process is only going to benefit us. Right. And that's the same goes for people of different backgrounds, mm-hmm. people of color. Yes, people, people of from color, LGBTQ. Economic. Exactly. Levels. Yeah. If we exclude people on artificial factors, then we are, you know, look at hidden figures where you've got African American women who are brilliant mathematical and scientific minds who were given very low level, I mean, they were doing incredible things, but they were given low level positions. What if they had been permitted to be involved at every step of the process? Where would we be now with the space program? You know, we just making artificial rules about who can and can't be involved really means we've just cut our noses off despite our faces, really. Right. Have you talked to your daughter about how awesome it is? Mm Mm-hmm. For you to be running for Congress as a woman? She, I mean, I, I talked to her about, you know, and it's, I'm sure this is a conversation that a lot, every parent's had with their kids, um, not limiting yourself, right? That the, the sort of mistakes that we make when we think, well, I shouldn't even try, I can't, or I won't be able to do that, that we, that that gets stitched in really young. And she's already on certain things like, well, I just can't do that. 
Um, and I really want to combat that thinking if I can for her. And one of the ways I can do it, I can talk to her about it, but the best way to, sh- to, to help her see that is to, sh- is to show her. Um, so here I am, right? Um, and it's not just her. There are other girls and women that I think are, um, you know, that I think would would actually benefit from seeing someone who's just kind of a normal person stepping up and saying, okay, I'll do it. Here's here. I'm, I'm here. And I think this is something I can do and I can do well. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to try. Yeah. And also I've always heard the phrase representation matters. Yeah. Just seeing someone who's, who was like you. Um, I always talk about the placemat I had when I was a kid, the presidents of the United States, yeah. and they were all old white men. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's if, if it would have been a woman on there, just one woman, right? how could that have changed my perspective on leadership and politics and women? So That's right. It would just have seemed possible. And this is the thing that we don't really factor in. Again, an intangible factor is this, the messaging, the very subtle messaging that in our lives that that's just not something women do. So it's not that you're told you can't be president one day. It's that you see that you can't be president one day and you can think, well, I could do that. I could try, but it would be, you know, whereas someone, you know, someone who's not in your demographic, someone in a more traditional demographic, a white man would say it's going to be this hard. And a woman would say it's going to be twice as hard for me because I have to get over all these other things in the process. Right. I wanted to ask you, now we're going to shift gears again, um, a little bit about your perspective on things that need to change in West Virginia. What, what, let's start by talking. I think that I'm, I'm from West Virginia. I've been yeah. here my whole life. Um, anyone who kind of is in tune with what's happening in the state, we have a lot of issues. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest? Well, I think that right now we can look at it sort of in a, in a more recent lens, which is the opioid addiction is I think our number one challenge right now. But I think it's it's linked to a much longer arc of of challenges that West Virginia's had. West Virginia, there is no reason that West Virginia has to be in and has to have the struggles that we have. Look at Colorado, which has a very similar topography, has a very similar extraction industry um, as part of its economy, um, has you know a lot of a lot of similar challenges throughout history. And where we are now as compared and where we've been as compared to Colorado is, um, you know, is is somewhat astonishing considering what we have um, in terms of resources here. And when I say the word resources, I mean at the top of that list, people. So West Virginia is unique in its, um, (laughs) you know, in that the people here are so incredibly hardworking and loyal to this place. It's like no other place I've seen. And at the same time, I think West Virginians have been told, have been sort of pushed into this notion that the value of the resources we have here are only as good as they, um, they're only good to get out of the ground and send somewhere else. That we can't be the place that makes the ships, you know, that, that we can't be the place that uses the coal to make the steel to make the ships. We have to pull the coal out of the ground and send it somewhere else to be used. And that part of the economy, the part from 
after it's been pulled out of the ground to the point where it becomes its final product is where all of the profit is. We get the first tiny little percentage of that. And that has that sort of, you know, that, that has driven a lot of the policy that's happening in West Virginia. And we keep thinking we have to feed into that. We have to support that, that part of the economy that only gives us that little tiny sliver of the resources um, that we could actually have. So timber is a great example. Um, you know, we cut timber and put it on a ship and send it to China. And then someone there turns it into a rocking chair. And the raw timber part of it is the least profitable part of that process by a lot. But no, I feel like it's, it's, it's like blasphemy. It's like the, it's the wrong thing to do to say, hey, wait a second. Why do we have to, why can't we keep that here? Why can't we encourage our culture, you know, encourage this incredible culture that we have to be able to capture those resources and use them for our benefit here. Um, and so that's why I'm talking about Texas has an incredibly high tax on any resources that leave the state in raw form. Hmm. But if it stays in the state and ends up being a rocking chair, then the taxes on that, on that are whatever that end product is, are much lo- lower. Why, that makes perfect sense to me in a place like West Virginia. And the, the companies won't leave because we have the resources. We, you can't say as a gas company, well, never mind, I'm not taking gas out of the ground because you know where the gas is? West Virginia. They can't just pick up and say, well, I'm getting gas from, you know, from Ohio. Well, there is some in Ohio, but they can't say I'm getting it from Arizona. Mm-hmm. It's not there. So, yes, we have, you know, neighboring states that have shale plays as well, and there, there are resources, um, but we're way below where we could be in terms of severance taxes and, and really taking advantage of the, every single level of the economy. I keep talking about an A to Z economy. We're making money at the very bottom, at the A level. I want to make money at every slice of that economic vertical ladder to the Z part of the economy. And that's how we capture that some of that wealth. And it benefits our schools and our um, infrastructure. You know, we get good schools, we get good roads, we get better health care. Everything comes together. How will being in Congress allow you to do this? So I think a few things. The opioid addiction crisis needs to be addressed as a, as a health care challenge, and I think universal health care is how we get there. We need treatment. We need detox. We need, um, we need to, to help people who are currently struggling with, a, with an addiction that may have started with a legal prescription of pain meds because people in West Virginia work jobs that end up hurting your back. Um, and, and so you start on that path through no fault of your own, and then you're in a deadly addiction. Um, so we need, we need healthcare and the federal government, it can be a very instrumental part in fixing our healthcare system by making it available, regardless of whether you have a job or whether you're of certain age, um, people deserve healthcare. And I think West Virginians really, really do particularly, um, at the same time, the federal government can support communities at the community level. Typically, federal funding goes to tax breaks for companies. Well, they're not going to come to West Virginia if the schools aren't good. So, I mean, they simply won't. People won't move here if their kids can't go to the school in the community that they're supposed to move to for a new job, so the companies won't come. It's as simple as that. It's actually pretty basic. 
So the federal government can support communities at the community level with perhaps small loans for or small grants for new new farms. Industrial hemp is a revenue source that we are completely denied based on a weird antiquated law. We're the only industrialized nation in the world that does not develop industrialized hemp. And guess what? We're the number one importer of industrialized Mm -hmm. hemp in the world. We spend millions and millions and millions of dollars importing hemp, which is actually really cheap and easy to grow and, and has hundreds and hundreds of uses. Marijuana, same concept. This is a revenue stream that we are missing out on. It also happens to be our number one export. It's just not legal. <laughs> so we're not actually capturing any of the revenue. Yeah. There are plenty, and the federal government's in the way there. Yeah. Um, that's that's a big piece of this, that the state could do what it, you know, the state has already stepped in with medical marijuana, and um, and the federal government could shut it down any day if it so, choose, if it so chooses. But um, so we need a change in the law at the federal level, and I that is a huge um, number one priority for me. Because I think that benefits our opioid addiction crisis, it's a safe pain alternative, and it creates revenue. So I could go a million directions, so (laughs) I'll stop there. I wanted to ask you, before we wrap up here, um, I always like talking to women who are on the show about other women in their lives. Who has been a major influence on your life, whether or not it's related to you running for Congress Mm -hmm. or just your overall success in the paths that you've chosen? Yeah. I, there are so many. Um, There's always a ton, too. <laughs> right, right, I know. And it has to be that way, right? You right. can't, you know, you can't end up in a position that I'm in, either for my professional career or my candidacy, without having seen other people do it really well. And two people in particular, one um, in West Virginia, Joyce McConnell, our former dean, now the provost at WVU, um, has a, a leadership style that I really admire, and she... Uh, has been incredibly supportive of me and my family, my husband. Uh, but the woman who made it possible for me to run for Congress was I, my first um, job in politics was working on a campaign in Michigan of a woman who was running for U.S. Senate. And it's actually the campaign I met my husband, where I met my husband, which is really, it's just... Political romance. Yeah, totally <laughs> political romance. And in fact, my now father-in-law was the campaign manager what? who hired me. It's just a... Yeah, so that was that really not only that experience brought my family together, but it made it possible for me to imagine doing this because my job was driving the candidate around. Oh my gosh! And she's an incredible person, as you might imagine. Um, has a calm and poise about her that I have that I found extremely um, comforting and and strong. You know, she has you know she's just incredibly good at being clear in her decision-making and comfortable that she's doing the right thing, even if it's controversial. Um, and I spent hours and hours and hours and hours with her. So she was someone I called early on in the campaign to let her know I was running. She was so excited. Um, she came to an event that my parents hosted for me and just kind of leapt out of her seat after my speech. and was like, I'm just so proud of you. And this is incredible. And I, she um, and I had been out of touch with her for years. I mean, I hadn't seen her in I don't know how many years, but she's right there. She's right there. And her, I think of her all the time because, you know, otherwise I don't, it's hard to relate to mm-hmm. someone who you feel like is really different from you. And, um, and so it, her leadership has, has been in my mind for this entire process. 
and she's really made it possible. I love that. That's my favorite part of the show. Yeah. Allowing women to talk about other women, how yeah. they influence their lives. Yeah. Um, I've really enjoyed having the chance to sit down with you. Um, I do want to ask one more question. Um, everyone has like an amp up song that just gets you motivated. <laughs> Is there any song that's been like your go-to song for your campaign or just over the course of your life that you listen to, to get you motivated and That's pumped funny. up and energized. That's funny. Um, my family's really into music. My kids are really musical. My husband listens to music constantly. I'm definitely the one in the family who has the least of that, but <laughs> yes, I do. Um, there are a lot of queen songs that I really love, you know, that like, you know, the queen was really good at that. Freddie Mercury was really good at that. Um, but the one that I actually used to run, it was on my running mix. Um, and if I ever ran, I'd, I'd hear it more <laughs> often. But it's uh, Brave by Sarah Bareilles. Okay. And um, and it just is really motivating to me. I'm, you know, Because, and people said it to me a lot when I first started running, um, they'd say, you're so brave to do this. And I thought at first it was, it kind of threw me because I thought it shouldn't be like that, right? It shouldn't be that this, this civic engagement, this service is something that requires courage to do, but it's true in the sense that like, well, at least, I mean, I don't know that it requires courage, but there's a part of it that feels very um, exposed where you feel like you're just, the world is sort of a, has an opinion about who you are, even though they don't know you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so when I listen to that song and the, the messages sort of speak up, say your truth and just be brave about it. I thought, okay, maybe that is the right, the right, way to think about it that it's you got to just push yourself and you got to encourage yourself by you know by you know accepting that it does take some emotional you know chutzpah to to get to to do this and uh so i'm i feel proud of that that is a great song i'm glad you picked that one yeah it's a good one (laughs) well kendra thank you so much for being on the show thank you Um, really looking forward to everyone having the chance to listen to this you all the um the may primary is may 8th there is an early voting period april 25th to may 5th kendra will be out and about in the the uh, first congressional district in west virginia you can find her on facebook she has a campaign site she's very available and as well as her campaign staff so kendra thanks so much for being on the show it's my true pleasure thank you hillary